Only totalitarian despotism in both countries could have faced the odium of such an unnatural act. These words belong to Winston Churchill. And folks, we're in the thick of it now. The shocking news are spreading around the globe. Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, the two arch enemies, are agreeing to a pact. For those in the know, they understand very well that this will be the spark that will ignite global conflict. And for the millions of people that are caught in the middle in the Baltic states and Poland in particular, they also understand that this is a catastrophe in the making one way or another. This means trouble for everyone. In fact, it turns out that the disaster is only just about a week away. As the news breaks in form of a press release on the Soviet news agency sent out as a German foreign minister lands in Moscow, communists all around the world are creatively trying to make sense of Comrade Stalin's latest move and this master plan that must be behind this, desperately trying to find ideas on how allying with Hitler can somehow promote the spread of communism. This unholy alliance, one of the most cynical acts in history, is about to be consummated, leading to the enthrallment and deaths of millions. This is part two of what history knows as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So to understand where we are in history, of course, you can listen to the first episode if you haven't already. But here is a very quick recap, regardless, just to put you in the right frame of mind. Hitler has, up until this point, August 1939, constantly been expanding Germany's influence through several forms of land grabs and political treaties like the unification, the so-called Anschluss with Austria. In Mein Kampf, Hitler has this rabid dream of living space, a Lebensraum in the east, uh, thinking that Germany must expand eastwards and the Slavs are inferior to the Germanic race, and he is coveting not only Poland but also large chunks of what is today's Ukraine. He feels all this necessary for the Germanic Reich to rise and be the leading star of Europe, if not the entire world. After the Western powers, meaning mostly Great Britain and France, have been sitting on their hands for years now, they have finally drawn a line in the sand for Hitler's actions, saying that they will come to Poland's aid if she suffers any action that threatens her independence. Now this turns Hitler absolutely livid, because this is effectively a diplomatic checkmate that puts an end to his expansion. He knows that when he attacks Poland, the West will finally declare war on Germany. Now, this is not necessarily a problem for Hitler. He's ready for war with Britain and France, and he has said as much to his people. But it becomes a huge problem if the massive Russian bear in the East all of a sudden also decides to get into the action 
And the matter is not really helped by Hitler constantly in his propaganda speeches has been lashing out against the communists, depicting them as the Antichrists and something that he wants to totally eradicate. Remember that communists also used to pledge a huge part in Germany before the Nazis took power and made all the other parties illegal. So the Nazis are arch enemies with the communists long before this, and communists are basically the same as Jews. They're complete enemies of every Nazi. At this point, Hitler does not want a war on two fronts, and he has no idea how easily Germany will eventually defeat France. And, you know, up until this point, France, we must remember, has been a huge power player in Europe, and Hitler himself, of course, has been stuck in the trenches of France in the previous war, so he knows firsthand how difficult war against France can be. So what the Soviet Union will do in this position is essential for the future of Europe. Now, the Western powers, they see this, of course, and they've been trying to speak to the Soviets. They have been sort of trying to cozy up to them a little bit, but still they find it a little bit too difficult. There's too much to swallow here. And also... They have made commitments to and have close relations with other European countries, most notably Poland, and they understand that Stalin really is up to no good. If we look at who Stalin is at this point, his political career consists of killing off something like six or seven or eight million of his own population. Hard to know exactly how many. Most of them uh, came through the Holodomor in Ukraine, where people were starved to death purposefully. The rest came through other failed attempts at collectivizing agriculture, and then, of course, the famous purges of political opponents and anyone in the army that Stalin would see as a threat. So there would be mock trials lasting only a few minutes before people were dragged out and shot. Stalin is a different kind of personality to Hitler in all this. He is rather secretive. He keeps his sort of, he he keeps his hand close to his chest. No one quite knows what he will do. He's difficult to read and he's utterly paranoid, even though he also has been said to have a certain charm. He could be quite hardly if he needed to, but if you want to describe Stalin, paranoid is a pretty good word. Around the world, communism has a large spread, however, and all these local communist fractions are more or less at this point under the control of Moscow, although, you know, there will be some individual differences, but communism is an international movement by this point, uh, led by the head of state and head of party, Joseph Stalin. Now, As you heard from the very beginning of this episode, we will be using Churchill here as one of our sources. And Churchill, though, is going to be a main topic throughout this episode, and we will discuss him at length because it's, 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 I mean, in one way, he's a perfect source. He's firsthand and he writes beautifully, even won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, But he's also strongly biased, and we absolutely must understand the nuances 
and the reality that he comes from. And while I am personally in the camp that believe that Churchill is a great man that showed incredible courage and was a hero of sorts, I suppose he had to make impossible decisions constantly, he's also a very biased man, as he is in fact himself, of course, you know, a a part of it. How can he be unbiased? So while he is a fantastic source, he's also willingly turning a blind eye to other things. And I think that this in regards to Stalin and Soviets and in their motivations, I think it's really important to discuss Churchill because I think his worldview has shaped how history has been told. I said in the first episode, this entire topic of this Nazi-Soviet conspiracy, this pact, it's kind of shrouded in some mystery and it's still a little bit complicated affair for many because, I mean, nobody comes out of it looking great. It's complicated. Either you have the more Churchillian Western narrative of things or if you have the more modern Russian historical narrative of things, then it's especially complicated. One example where I think Churchill is wrong and that's important for us to discuss, is that according to him, both Hitler and Stalin hate the pact. It's something done out of necessity from both, and from the Russian side, it was only somehow a ploy to buy time, a little bit self-interest, of course, but mostly it was because, you know, Germany was scary, and, you know, I think this is something, I will argue for this, but something that's altered in hindsight. Rather, the Soviets, of course, they did imagine war in the West at some point. It was This was not sort of complete foreign to them, but not necessarily in a noble fight against Nazism, but rather that after the big powers had knocked each other out, they would come in and take over and ensure that the communist revolution would take place there as well. We have compared these two players, Nazis and the Soviets, to Godzilla and King Kong, two gigantic monsters all of a sudden teaming up. But since Churchill actually ends up with King Kong in the end, he seems to have a desire to sugarcoat him a little bit, even though he will, of course, be critical as well about the obvious stuff. I mean, he will call the USSR, Uh, authoritarian despotism and so forth. So he will say these things and he has the famous quote from 1946 that kind of ushers in the Cold War that goes from Staten in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent, end quote. But it's still very much surprising to read and we'll see this as we go on how Churchill is kind of excusing Stalin in 1939. He's clearly saying that this is the failed attempt of British and French diplomacy over years, and that this is kind of our fault. We should have made a deal with Stalin early on, even though we would have known that it would lead to much hardship to everyone in Eastern Europe. Now, this supposed hatred of the Nazi-Soviet pact with Hitler and Stalin, it also stands in stark contrast to quite a lot of other evidence that we have. 
like a letter from Molotov quoted in the previous episode, we also have Hitler's extreme enthusiasm when he learns that it goes, uh, that it's actually happening, that it goes through. But we also have Stalin's reaction when Hitler actually do invade Russia eventually. I mean, Stalin doesn't want to believe it. He's more or less in shock. He's executing people that tries to warn him. And as we are just about to learn, there is also a lot of camaraderie and collaboration in the start. So while Churchill is a fantastic source, but not if you forget that he has his own desire to portray these in favourable terms for himself. He does not have all the facts either available to him when he's writing. That's also something to keep in mind. And he might also be skewed by actually being told stuff directly by Stalin that I think we can say are now not completely true. And of course, from Churchill's point of view, if he is saying straight out after the war that the Soviets, they are almost just as bad as the Nazis, I mean, what does that do for his narrative? He's in a pickle then, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, we defeated Nazidom, as he would call it, but we enabled the dictatorship by someone perhaps almost equally as bad. You know, so that's a problem for Churchill. And, you know, why are we discussing Churchill so much as the source? Well, because I think his narrative has colored everything that is known to us. Not everything, but at least a huge part of how this story traditionally has been told. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind as we progress. I mean, in in many ways, Churchill, he was in an impossible position. So, I mean, we must just understand this ambivalence when he writes and keep it with us. I think in many ways he's just a politician balancing on this thin line when he's writing. He's always sort of uh, always balancing. One hand, criticizing communists very much, uh, their disregard of individual liberty, and the other hand, saying something along the lines that we all had to make hard choices here, and the Russians had to make a deal with somebody they didn't really like. Just as from the beginning, we should have made a deal with somebody we didn't really like, namely the Russians. I think that you in one way might make a case that Churchill's narrative also unfortunately has helped forge or at least assist some of the current narrative going on in Russia and that is the narrative that the world war for Russia's part kind of starts in 1941 when Hitler invades and Russia is kind of a quote-unquote innocent part and if you really do have to mention the sore spot that is the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the story might be, in Russia at least, from Vladimir Putin's head at least, that it was very unfortunate but necessary, whereas the case that we will be making in this episode will be more along the lines with historian Roger Morehouse and what I think is undoubtedly the truest path to this, and that is that this is the deal that ignites World War II not because of any necessity, but mainly because of very greedy opportunism on both sides, and that Russia is a big part of that and bears a responsibility for everything that is to follow. And with all that said, let's move back to Moscow, August 1939. The German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop has just landed and there is marching bands there greeting him with Nazi flags taken straight out of the propaganda TV studios where they were used to show how bad the Nazis were only days and weeks before this. And now they are there, and they are saluting the Germans as best buddies. 
There are only a handful of people in the German entourage, but all in all, you know, I think we could say there are not all that many people that will be involved in this because on the one hand, this deal will be made super public and there are photographers there to ensure that this is documented properly. But on the other hand, there will be this secret protocol to the deal that will in fact not be known until after the war. So one part is supposed to be super public, whereas the other part is top secret. The photographers that are there from the German side, one of them is Hitler's personal photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, which is a, a special character on his own, actually. He's, at this time, rather experienced, seasoned man. He's actually the only one allowed to take public photos of Hitler, and he's also the guy that had introduced Hitler to his mistress, Eva Braun. Uh, she used to work as an assistant at his photo studio. So he's there. Hitler has instructed Hoffman to make sure to get some real great close-up of Stalin's earlobes and, you know, completely bonkers because Hitler has this idea that if Stalin had attached earlobes, he would have Jewish blood and if not, he was quote-unquote okay. As we finished the last episode with, there are negotiations on the 23rd of August 1939 during the evening. Ribbentrop is making a phone call back to Hitler and Stalin. All of a sudden he's getting dibs on yet another Baltic state, which Hitler is actually fine with. From the Soviet side, there are really Stalin and Molotov that are the two main people that are part of it, there might not be all that many other people knowing about the secret protocol, and Stalin and Hitler never met in person, by the way. In some very few hours during this summer evening in Moscow, the fate of so much of Europe is to be decided by people with no right or little cultural knowledge or insights to most of the people that will suffer the consequences of it. They are sitting there drafting both parts of the treaty during these hours. It's not long, actually. There are only seven paragraphs, that is, the official version, and then only four paragraphs for the secret version. It will not be known in detail to the world until the Nuremberg trials in 1945. Today, of course, we know exactly what was written, both in the open part and in the secret part. There really must be one of history's biggest actual real conspiracies, as we mentioned. Perhaps we can even call it one of the greatest crimes against humankind of all times. To begin with, the public version, and Molotov and Ribbentrop and the others, they're working back and forth with the wording. Stalin is there and these final results, as we said, seven paragraphs or articles, that what they will be known as, they will be stating that Germany and the USSR have agreed on a new deal to continue on from old treaties from 1926 that, um, that they want to promote peace. And they also say something about, you know, trying to draw lines back in history. It's the 1926 treaties, again, was a continuation of a so-called treaty of Rapallo and so forth. Okay, I'll just read some of the some of the articles so that you'll you'll know this is just black and white. The first article states, quote Boat high contracting parties obligate themselves to desist from any act of violence 
any aggressive action and any attack on each other, either individually or jointly with other powers, end quote. And the second one goes you know, along the same lines to say that if a third party goes towards against either, the other party will not in any way support this third party. So basically saying that none of us will partake in a proxy war either on, on the other. The third article goes like this, quote, The governments of the two high contracting parties shall in the future maintain continual contact with one another for the purpose of consultation in order to exchange information on problems affecting their common interests, end quote. The remaining four paragraphs of the public version goes on to say that if there are any disagreements between Russia and Nazi Germany, these will be solved by friendly conversations and so forth, and that the treaty lasts for 10 years and will be valid from the point it is signed, not awaiting any further ratification, also kind of unusual. Now, I think that what we can read out of this is that it's clearly from the start more than a non-aggression pact. I mean, they're talking about exchange of information and uh, continual contact. It seems more like an alliance, even in the public version. Uh, It's not only that we won't attack each other, even though we really hate each other kind of thing. It's drawing back to times before Nazism came in order to sort of create this sort of image of this being something natural that we have collaborated before and we will collaborate again. And it's also very clear that um, an enemy of either of us must must not be assisted in any way. Um, And yeah, so I think... To be fair, even the open version is, is, is not worthy of being called a non-aggression pact. It's too mild for what it really was. And all this is also, of course, before we get to the real sinister stuff. And this is just kind of James Bond villain kind of stuff. The so-called secret additional protocol. I mean, when even the headline is called the secret something, I mean, geez, it has four articles, and I will quote them. The first goes like this, quote, In the event of a territorial and political rearrangement in the areas belonging to the Baltic states, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the northern boundary of Lithuania shall represent the boundary of the spheres of influence of Germany and USSR. In this connection, the interest of Lithuania in the Vilna area is recognized by each party, end quote. So this so-called rearrangement will actually also be rearranged again, as the Soviet Union will in fact get all of Lithuania. But this is Hitler and Stalin saying that you get this, I get that. And it continues in Article 2, quote, In the event of a territorial and political rearrangement of the areas belonging to the Polish state, the spheres of influence of Germany and the USSR shall be bounded approximately by the line of the rivers Nara, Vistula and San. The question of whether the interests of both parties make desirable the maintenance of an independent Polish state and how such a state would be bounded can only be definitely determined in the course of further political developments. Uh, 
in any event, both governments will resolve this question by means of a friendly agreement. End quote. So, in short, basically the Nazis will get what's to the west up until these rivers and Stalin will get what is in the east. The third article goes like this, quote, With regard to southeastern Europe, attention is called by the Soviet side to its interest in Bessarabia. The German side declares its complete political disinterest in these areas, end quote. Now, Bessarabia is what is part of Moldova today and partly in Ukraine, so Hitler is basically clearly saying that, you know, you have stated that this is your sort of interest, these are your lands you want, that's fine, you can have them, we have no interest whatsoever, and of course these land areas will be annexed by the Soviet Union, just like the Baltic states will be. And then the last and fourth article in the secret protocol, I mean, it just very clearly points out to us today that this is a criminal act, and they know it. It's just super laconic, and it goes like this, quote, This protocol shall be treated by both parties as strictly secret. End quote. I mean, it's almost, <laughs> it almost like a gang of small boys playing, you know, playing secret detective or something. This is top secret. But, but this is word by word what the entire Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty states. As the clock is ticking towards midnight, August 23, both parties are starting to become satisfied with the wording and with the results, and then drinks are coming out, and there is really very little sense that this is something that any of the sides hate. On the contrary, they seem to view this as a huge triumph. I mean, I suppose they could have just finished and gone home, but they are toasting and what is called Crimean champagne is brought out and apparently there is a real jolly atmosphere in the room. Stalin is constantly smoking and there is a famous photo of this that has actually made it to us where Stalin raises his glass and says this, quote, I know how much the German nation loves its Führer. I should therefore like to drink to his health, end quote. This photo was taken by the other German photographer there, a guy with the name of Helmut Lauchs. But Stalin was quick to say that he did not want uh, that photo published and likely as he didn't want to create an impression of this deal being made while they were drunk. So Lauchs then offered Stalin to take the film out of the camera and give it to him, but Stalin stated that he, quote, trusted the word of a German, end quote. Very gemütlich. So they basically all seem to have a good time together, and when we turn to the early hours of August 24, a bit unclear if they even slept that much that night, they are, they are cleaning away all the empty glasses, and they are ready to sign the treaty with the photographers doing their bit, and all these images are of course available to us today. Stalin watching on joyfully as Molotov signs on behalf of the Soviet Union and Stalin then heartedly shaking hands with Ribbentrop. At this point, the fate of Eastern Europe for the next years will be sealed. Now, they are both aware 
of the public relation problems that will follow this, actually Stalin is more concerned than Ribbentrop is, and it might be because of a rather limited intellect on the latter's part. But Stalin says that this will take some time for people to get accustomed to, and he will, of course, be right. It will immediately lead to a lot of people growing disillusioned on both sides around the globe, but it tells us something that they had calculated this into the arrangement but still thought it worth it. And they still thought that this was an opportunity too good to pass up. Churchill, back to him again, perhaps called by his later conversations with Stalin, is constantly emphasizing that the Soviets, they were afraid of Hitler's military might because of their purchase in their own army in 1938, and that Stalin didn't feel ready for a war with Hitler at this time, and that this pact was almost something he did in self-defense. But it's hard to see this adding up. The purchase of 38 was, of course, very much of Stalin's own doing. And, of course, also Hitler's expansion and ambitions was by then very well known to him. And Stalin, he also wants to rearrange the world order. And he seems almost gleefully happy when the Germans invade France almost a year later. And then there's Molotov's fantasies that the old European powers will eradicate one another for the Soviet Union to sweep in and pick up the pieces. And it's hard to say if Churchill really has this blind spot or if it's his way to sugarcoat his own later deals with Stalin and defend his position from the very start that Britain completely made a mess out of this with his foreign policy by not striking a deal with the Russians. We don't know. Hitler, though, he is thrilled when the delegation returns after signing of the treaty he calls Ribbentrop, that we described in the first episode. He's a kind of moronic character and that has actually conceded one, an entire country in the negotiations to Stalin. But Hitler seems to be happy and calls him a second Bismarck. And he's also very curious about Stalin. He asks if he gives orders or if he's sort of camouflaging his orders as wishes. He asks how Stalin shakes other people's hands and so forth. And he's very disappointed when he's seeing that Stalin is smoking in all of the photos. So his photographer Hoffman has to manipulate out the cigarettes of all the images. It's almost like Hitler at this point is in the frenzy as a result of, of this deal. He's finally seeing that his dream of a great German empire is about to potentially come through. One source that we have from this time is Albert Speer that survived the war, uh, survived the Nuremberg trials and um, and lived to, to write his memoirs. And they're kind of important for that reason because he's one of the few people, in fact, very close to Hitler throughout the war that is not execution, executed. So, so his history is, of course, also hugely biased, but it's worth mentioning. Now, as you know, Speer is an architect, uh, or might know, he's an architect, which Hitler, Hitler was immensely fascinated by, having him making agri uh, architectural models on how the new Reich would look like, and, and in many ways, Speer is playing an important role in the sort of visuals that would surround much of Nazi propaganda. 
what Speer writes about these days is that he's saying that Hitler would, after the deal, show them a movie of a Soviet military parade being very joyful that his fantastic diplomacy had neutralized such a powerful foe. And then, according to Speer, it's almost like Hitler is losing it, like he is truly entering a state of megalomania And among other things, he wants Speer to no longer have the massive eagle sculpture in central Berlin hover over a swastika, but rather he wants to design a new sculpture where the grand German eagle is holding the entire world in his claws. And he's telling Speer that, you know, this time around, blood will be spilled, conflict will be unavoidable. It's almost like he's in this war frenzy. Again, this stands in harsh contrast to Churchill's memoirs when he writes this about the treaty, quote, It's a question whether Hitler or Stalin loathed it most. Both were aware that it could only be a temporary expedient. The antagonism between the two empires and systems were mortal. Stalin, no doubt, felt that Hitler would be a less deadly foe to Russia after a year of war with the Western powers, end quote. Yeah, Getting back to this time and time again, I hope you're not completely fed up with Churchill now, but I suppose from an ideological standpoint, they will hate the deal. And that's true to some extent. But for the time being, at this moment, and from a purely strategic and tactical standpoint, it doesn't seem like any of them could be any happier. And while Hitler probably is thinking about sometime invading Russia. At least he has stated that he wants part of their territory long ago. I'm hard-pressed to find anything to suggest that Stalin really has any short-term plans rather than upholding this deal, and that he actually trusts Hitler and actually... I mean, Stalin also being personally present has invested quite a lot of his own sort of political capital into this deal. He believes in this. This is important for him. And that's also why he's so reluctant to believe it when Hitler is actually starting to turn on him. You know, when troops are starting to amass on the Soviet border, he's just annoyed and his main focus is not... um, It's not, oh, we need to build our own defenses so Hitler is going to attack us. His main focus is we mustn't do anything to provoke the Nazis. You know, we have a deal. You know, they they mustn't get the wrong idea. That's his standpoint. Anyways, once the pact is signed, Hitler is, of course, not known as a man to be very patient. And his plan is actually to invade Poland the very next day. But instead of invading on the 25th of August, he enters into some sort of dialogue with them. It's all a shame, really, and it's partly because he's going to see if this is enough to get Great Britain and France to pull back their security guarantees to Poland. And he's also expecting a little bit more from Italy as an ally at this point, hoping somehow that some sort of united push would deter the sort of Western powers from declaring war. He sort of wants to give them an off-ramp or a second chance to sort of to think again, you know, about this, you know, why do you sort of promise to defend Poland kind of stuff. But after brushing some initial concerns aside, Hitler invades Poland on September 1st. And in retrospect, this is what most people will see as the official start of World War 
two. Um, and this is, of course, a direct consequence of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The Nazi-Soviet conspiracy leads to this. Hitler, at this point, doesn't think that Britain wants war. He remembers how easily they folded during the Munich conference in 1938. You know, that's all the Chamberlain stuff, the peace in our time, uh, when they sort of thought they made a deal with Hitler. That was, you know, Hitler just laughed. He he didn't mean that. Um, And he kind of, he sees them as weak. Um, And also he thinks that, you know, what on earth can really Great Britain and France do to us if you look at it? I mean, the massive threat of Britain militarily at this time, and it has been for a long time, is her navy. So for centuries, Great Britain has used naval power to consolidate colonial dominance and trade. And, you know, what that does for you is that you can basically block off ports as you like, preventing goods from leaving or coming. And this could be, you know, putting immense pressure on Germany uh, as it had uh, in the First World War, as Germany is a country with only a few important ports. Hitler knows, however, that if he gets access to rich agricultural lands in the east and raw materials shipped from Russia on land he is much less vulnerable for naval blockades. And besides, are France or Britain really going to try a land invasion of Germany? I mean, the country that has for years now been building up a huge high-tech military as demonstrated in the Spanish Civil War, while those democratic states desperate, you know, to avoid another war has been slumbering. I know Hitler doesn't think so, and he's not really afraid of that short term. He has estimated that it will take time for them to catch up. And of course, the period that will come after this will quickly be dubbed the phony war in British newspapers, which sounds so strange to us now, knowing how the world war would eventually unfold. But if you were a normal citizen in the streets of Manchester or Birmingham, during, let's say, the winter of 1939, perhaps you might almost laugh off this silly conflict with Germany. At least it's nothing like the previous one, right? After they initially they asked us to fill up sandbags and so forth, they, they urged us to take wartime measures after declaring war, but nothing is happening. Besides Hitler, like most dictators, to be fair, sees democracies as soft and, and, and weak, which is interesting because modern sort of signs indicate that demo- democracies most of the time seems to win wars against dictatorships. But Hitler anyways actively wants to avoid and he doesn't sort of seek any military confrontations at the beginning. Is kind of hoping or thinking that all this might sort of wither away and result in nothing if these people are just left alone and, you know, people in the streets of London and Paris, they will get on with their lives and, you know, he can continue expanding in the East without the West meddling in too much. Regardless of this, of course, Hitler knows that this is a conflict of some proportion and he's eager not to repeat the mistakes public relation-wise of 1914 when the First World War broke out 
and he kind of doesn't want Germany to be portrayed as the bad guy again, which is kind of comical to think about now, but he's actually quite uh, quite conscious of this before invading Poland. So he, like many other dictatorships before and after, seems to be making the mistake that just because you can convince your own rather brainwashed population about something rather bizarrely untrue, it, this might not necessarily have much sway on people in other countries and especially not so in countries with a free independent press and media outlets. So whatever charades that you create, um, they will most likely or perhaps at least see through that. So if we are returning to Roger Morehouse's book, The Devil's Alliance, Stalin at this point is seemingly very pleased with himself. He's saying something along the lines that uh, he knows exactly what Hitler is up to, that he has him fooled, and Molotov will proclaim that the ruling classes of Britain and France are at fault for the current political situation. He doesn't think he has Hitler fooled 22 months onwards from this, though, when Hitler attacks. Hitler signs the orders to attack Poland on the 31st of August and in the very early hours of September 1st, the operation starts eight days after the signing of the deal in Moscow. In order to try to create some sort of justification or Cassius Belli, the Germans are doing several horrible things and the most famous incident in, is known to us as the Gleiwitz incident. It's a classical false flag operation. On August 30th, the Germans arrested a Polish nationalist. They drugged him down and put him in a Polish army uniform before they shot him. They then pretended that several Polish troops had captured the Gleiwitz radio station. Gleiwitz is then obviously a, a, a place, as you might imagine. They also allegedly were broadcasting some kind of fabricated anti-German speech in Polish, um, and just to pretend that the Polish attacked us. Um, then uh, this Polish nationalist, his name was Franciszek Honiuk, and is sometimes considered the first casualty of the war. They, they poured this poor man's body to this radio station and they put a few other Polish, Polish prisoners there that they killed and put in Polish uniforms and spread them out there to sort of, sort of create a sort of narrative that they attacked. And there are actually several similar situations that are completely sort of constructed by the Nazis along the borders that Hitler will use as an excuse for, for, for the war. And actually, I'll spend a little bit of time on this because this is hugely fascinating. Hitler's speech in the Reichstag held on this day that the war starts on September 1st is, you know, for everything that has been written and done about World War II, it's kind of strange that, you know, it's not more famous, put it that way. Um but before we go into this speech, I'll spend a bit of time on it because it's super interesting and it kind of has some eerie echoes in sort of today politics. But obviously we must remember that Hitler and most dictators really, they constantly lie rather shamelessly and they often will talk about peace and freedom and how they are the ones planning for that. And they are very often playing the victim and Hitler is sort of the school book example of how you do this. Um, it's, it's really, really 
interesting. He's basically saying that Germany, we have done everything in our power here. We we almost are, are doing this until the point of inflicting self-harm. We have no other option than to invade Poland. And he says this, quote, The German government and its leader patiently endured such treatment. Germany would deserve only to disappear from the political stage. But I am wrongly judged if my love of peace and my patience are mistaken for weakness or even cowardice. I therefore decided last night and informed the British government that in these circumstances I can no longer find any willingness on the part of the Polish government to conduct serious negotiations with us. These proposals for mediation have failed because in the meanwhile there first of all came as an answer the sudden Polish general mobilization followed by more Polish atrocities. These were again repeated last night. Recently, in one night, there were as many as 21 frontier incidents. Last night, there were 14, of which three were quite serious. I have therefore resolved to speak to Poland in the same language that Poland for months past has used towards us. This attitude on the part of the Reich will not change. End quote. So Hitler is very clearly saying we are the victims here. Kind of absurd as he is speaking uh, as literally one million German troops are entering Polish territory. Stukas, the dive bombers, they are attacking villages. You have executions of civilians. Morehouse names one example of early German executions where a bunch of Boy Scouts are lined up a wall and shot. And when a Catholic, sort of little bit confused priest, tries to come running to give them their last rites, they shoot him as well. Doesn't sound like victims to me. Hitler then continues to talk about the geopolitical situation around this and says that all sensible nations will understand Germany's point of view in all this, and it's only the West that is being completely unreasonable. Quote, The other European states understand in part our attitude. I should like here above all to thank Italy, which throughout has supported us, but you will understand that for the carrying on of this struggle, we do not intend to appeal to foreign help. We will carry out this task ourselves. The neutral states have assured us of their neutrality, just as we had already guaranteed it to them. When statesmen in the West declare that this affects their interests, I can only regret such a declaration. It cannot for a moment make me hesitate to fulfil my duty. What more is wanted? I have solemnly assured them, and I repeat it, that we ask nothing of those Western states and will never ask anything. I have declared that the frontier between France and Germany is a final one. I have repeatedly offered friendship and, if necessary, the closest cooperation to Britain, but this cannot be offered from one side only. It must find response on the other side. 
Germany has no interests in the West, and our Western Wall is for all time the frontier of the Reich on the West. Moreover, we have no aims of any kind there for the future. With this assurance, we are in solemn earnest, and as long as others do not violate their neutrality, we will likewise take every care to respect it. End quote. I mean, the hypocrisy and lying here is at an astonishing level. Sometimes we might have trouble understanding how something like this is even possible if we are living in modern democracy where we are used to politicians being held accountable. How everything is turned upside down um yeah it's it's astonishing but to stick with our topic hitler in this speech then moves straight on to the now recently signed molotov ribbentrop pact as evidence that any sane country will understand uh, germany's position and would be willing to strike a deal unlike those morons in the west that are just being used to bully everyone around more or less saying that they are the real warmongers quote I am happy particularly to be able to tell you of one event. You know that Russia and Germany are governed by two different doctrines. There was only one question that had to be cleared up. Germany has no intention of exporting its doctrine, given the fact that Soviet Russia has no intention of exporting its doctrine to Germany, I no longer see any reason why we should still oppose one another. On both sides we are clear on that. Any struggle between our people would only be of advantage to others. We have, therefore, resolved to conclude a pact which rules out forever any use of violence between us. It imposes the obligation on us to consult together in certain European questions. It makes possible for us economic cooperation, and above all, it assures that the powers of both these powerful states are not wasted against one another. Every attempt of the West to bring about any change in this will fail. End quote. So basically, if you have, if you're a dictator and you have another dictator, you can easily deal with him, even though he's your ideological opposite, as long as he, you know, doesn't want to sort of export his doctrine to you. It's the democracies you're really struggling with. And we're just about finishing Hitler's speech to the Reichstag here, but I'll just bring one more quote, one last quote to the table. And that's because Hitler is also endorsing a speech Molotov had previously held and um, saying that Russia now are in full agreement with, with, with Germany over foreign politics, uh, there are especially some discussions around the city of Danzig, I won't go into but um, he says this on the new pact, Hitler does, quote, At the same time, I should like here to declare that this political decision means a tremendous departure for the future, and that it is a final one. Russia and Germany fought against one another in the World War. That shall and will not happen a second time. In Moscow, too, this pact was greeted exactly as you greet it. I can only endorse word for word the speech of Russian Foreign Commissar Molotov. End quote. Again, where Churchill gets the idea that both Hitler and Stalin hates this deal is hard to tell, other than, you know, retrospectively sort of 
rewriting this. Those who really do seem to find this appalling, though, and there are enough of those, they are the people that actually believe in the narrative, those that really believe in national socialism and in communism. It seems that dictators really have strong ideological principles as long as they get it their way. It's never about high-flying sort of philosophy. It's really about personal ambition and power. But let's take a sneak peek or a quick look at the reactions throughout the world to this treaty because especially the communists, they will struggle. But let's start with Hitler, actually, because he was also one of those that has reactions to the reactions to how international press will react. And according to Speer, Hitler is extremely curious about, you know, what what are the Western newspapers saying, you know, after this deal is made official in, in these few days before he attacks Poland. And when he's hearing that one British newspaper proclaims that this is the beginning of the end for the British Empire, Hitler is ecstatic. Spare writing, quote, he thought he had gotten so high that fate itself could no longer reach him, end quote. Now, for others, it was it was different. I think Roger Moore has had some good examples on how the especially British communists reacted. Uh, as we said, there are many communist parties around the world, uh, not only in Europe, there's one in the United States as well and other places. Um, and it's, of course, not the same with National Socialism. This is much more a sort of strictly German invention, although you will have relatives like in Norway, as we discussed in our first Quisling series. Of course, you have fascism in Italy. But communism at this point has been a huge deal and huge ideology for a long time. And Russia has emerged as the undisputed international leader. And one thing is controlling your own population. But if you are a communist in Britain, in the US, um, or any other other place, it's a real bitter pill to swallow that your arch enemy is overnight your ally. So Russia has this political powerhouse organization. It's called the Comintern or Communist International Of course, it's not independent in any way, but as this new Molotov-Ribbentrop deal came to be, it's a shock also for them, or perhaps they didn't even know how to interpret it, because after it is signed, they are continuing with their ongoing slurs against Nazi Germany in their propaganda, and actually has to directly be told that, hey guys, didn't you get the memo? We're not doing that anymore. Now it's the other guys that we're talking bad about now. Germany's war is just. We're kind of, you know, supporting that. It's the Western democracies. Those are the bad guys. It's kind of fun. Well, at least comical. In Britain, there's a guy, his name is Harry Pollitt. He's in charge of the British Communist Party at the time. And I think he is a person we can call a rather devout communist. He really believes in in this doctrine. During the first week of September, he is one of these people that has a real hard time making sense of it all. So he writes and releases a pamphlet talking about the war that has just started. Um, And also, I think we must remember that for these people, these communists, they are viewing people like Chamberlain and Churchill as sort of semi-fascists. So they are strongly opposed to their own sort of liberal or conservative politicians. And so Paulit argues in his pamphlet that, you know, we can still sort of 
fight against Chamberlain at home, even though we will sort of support our foreign policies and our sort of fight against Hitler um, now that we sort of just have declared war. So, so it's okay to hate Chamberlain, even though we're at war with the Nazis. His pamphlet was printed in huge numbers in the tens of thousands and distributed to, to all the British communists. But about the same time, the Comintern had gotten their sort of act together. They realized what Stalin wanted. And now we're talking sort of quite early September here. And so they are sort of trying to get everybody into the party line. They're all the international communist parties around the world saying that, you know, if you're a real communist, no one of the working class must support the war against Germany from the Allies. You know, it's counter-revolutionary and so on. So this poor Paulette and the British communists had to make a 180 degree turn, withdrawing the pamphlet and Paulette that, to his credit, did argue for his point of view, despite the orders from Central HQ, lost his party role for a while. Most of the communists were quite acceptive to the fact that all of a sudden this deal was happening, saying that, you know, if Comrade Stalin has done this, he knows best. He's a genius, kind of blindly following the leader. If we are talking about this pact being either a deal out of necessity or a deal made out of opportunism, it seems that the necessity part only really applies to the Nazi thinking here. And when Churchill writes that this was, quote, a question whether Hitler or Stalin loathed it the most, both were aware that it could only be a temporary expedient, end quote, it seems that it's only true for Hitler. For Stalin, it's likely not so true, because we'll see several examples of Stalin actually adhering to this treaty with almost blind fate, and to be fair, so does Ribbentrop and Molotov. When Hitler finally attacks in 1941, and there can no longer be any doubt that the pact is ending, Ribbentrop runs after Russian diplomats, whispering stuff like, you know, tell Moscow that I was against this. So it's Hitler and the other Nazi hawks that is pushing through the attack on Russia in 1941 through um, that when they don't see the need for the pact anymore. That's why they do it. And he puts this twisted ideological reasoning on the forefront, despite the fact that at this point, the pact with Russia is actually very lucrative for the Nazis. So, and I'm returning a little bit to this point now, because it's crucial if we want to look at the long-term effects of these events, I think we need to, for lack of a better word, debunk certain parts of the Churchill narrative, to call it that. And to be clear, I'm really not trying to talk down Churchill, that is a fantastic historical figure, but it seems rather obvious that his interpretation has been far too kind to the Soviets and then his memoirs, they are really a politician justifying why Godzilla is a monster, whereas King Kong is not. He's kind of only a villain, a misunderstood rascal that has made mistakes and been naughty and that we in many ways don't, you know, approve of, but he is someone that we can collaborate with and we should have collaborated with him from the start in order to take down Godzilla. And all this geopolitics and their rather sort of confusing nature, this chess game behind how the war starts, I think is something really worth digging into. Besides, who decides really when a conflict is indeed a world war? I mean, 
these is just labels that we put on stuff, right? Normally, you would think that it means that it's a global conflict, but they didn't start calling it the Second World War until Roosevelt did so in 1941. In Britain, it was just called the war for a long time. So these are labels that we put on stuff in retrospect. No one knew the Second World War had started in 1939. And also in much of our Western narrative and, you know, the Soviet Union is kind of not taking part in the war either until Hitler attacks them in 1941 because we primarily see this as a conflict um, that is the fight against the Nazis, you know. And we kind of first care about the Soviets once they are fighting the same enemy as we are. I think you can rightfully criticise the West here for being way too selective. Just think about this. Just about any history book will state that World War II starts when Hitler invades Poland, and fair enough, but what makes the Soviet invasion of Poland only 16 days later any different? How is it that they can send in hundreds of thousands of troops into another independent country, allegedly protected by diplomatic agreements with Western allies and occupied backed by Nazi Germany? and then somehow not actively being taken part of the war. And why doesn't the Soviet invasion also make England and France take action and declare war on the Soviet Union? After all, they had offered Poland their guarantees, even though they clearly had Germany in mind while doing so. But by the wording of their agreement with Poland, shouldn't Great Britain also have declared war on the Soviet Union in 1939? And why didn't they? Churchill kind of explains this to us in his memoirs, even though he's dodging some of those, you know, really hard questions. And one more thing about his memoirs, perhaps it's wrong of me actually calling them that, because it's more like he's talking like a historian. He's gathering quotes from others and whatnot, constantly adding his own views to them. And he's not hiding the fact that the Soviets were indeed invading Poland in 1939. He actually provides maps with arrows drawn on them to show the Soviet advances. So he's not at all pretending it didn't happen. And it's kind of hard to pretend that when the Soviets took at least 320,000 Poles as prisoners of war. But I believe Churchill, to be honest in a way about what he writes, he believes his own narrative however biased it might be, um, but he says that he still feel that even though this is, you know, Soviet aggression, clearly it is, um, that this is uh, something they had to do out of fear, out of Hitler, although he also says that the Russians are acting through some self-interest and that they are super hard to figure out, but nevertheless, he feels that from a strategic standpoint, Nazi Germany now has a clear eastern front against the hostile neighbor in, in the east, and that's really all he cares about. It is almost like he does not have the capacity for moral indignation towards both, he cannot accept that both Godzilla and King Kong are becoming friends. He has to believe that there is still some good in King Kong and he can't contribute to uniting them further. He needs to, to balance on this really thin line where he is on the one hand calling out the Soviet Union for trying to enslave people in the East, but at the same time, he doesn't want to lead them further into the arms of Hitler, always emphasizing the huge political gulf that is between the Nazis and the Soviets. 
And to be fair, this will be British politics after Churchill takes over as Prime Minister. He's constantly trying to separate Hitler and Stalin. He wants Stalin over on his side. When Molotov visits Berlin, Churchill goes to great lengths to try to drop some bombs over there, not for any military reasons, but because he wants to destroy the Nazi narrative towards the Soviet that Britain is crushed. Whatever he can do to mess up cordial dialogue between Molotov and Ribbentrop, between the Nazis and the Soviets, uh, he will try to do so. Now, no historical person has more famous quotes than Churchill, and one of them comes from the speech where he tries to make sense out of the Soviet invasion of Poland. This is held right after all of Poland has been engulfed by Hitler and of, uh, by Stalin, and the date is October 1st. Quote, Russia has pursued a cold policy of self-interest. We could have wished that the Russian armies should be standing on their present line as the friends and allies of Poland instead of as invaders. But that the Russian armies should stand on this line was clearly necessary for the safety of Russia against the Nazi menace. At any rate, the line is there and an eastern front has been created which Nazi Germany does not dare assail. End quote. And here comes his famous description of Russia, quote, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. It cannot be in accordance with the interest of the safety of Russia that Germany should plant herself upon the shores of the Black Sea or that she should overrun the Balkan states and subjugate the Slavonic peoples of southeastern Europe. That would be contrary to the historic life interests of Russia, end quote. It is kind of astonishing how he, I mean, it perfectly sort of shows this balancing act he's doing because he's, in one hand, he's condemning Russia, but he's also excusing them. And he's already starting to groom them as a future ally against Hitler. Of course, you know, we should also keep in mind, Churchill, he's not prime minister at this time. That happens a little bit later in May 1940. So that's all the politics here. But let's take a look at what has been going on in Poland from uh, the 1st of September to the 1st of October when this speech was taking place. Now, the Nazi occupation will be a schoolbook example of the so-called Blitzkrieg. It's the massive combination of air power and armor, knocking out enemy communication systems, the movement of troops at rapid speed. It's unprecedented, I think we can say, uh, at this time. It is a horrendous experience for the Polish population. There will be executions and violence. And after the initial occupying wave, where you might kind of hope that the worst is over, the Nazis had something particularly nasty, the so-called Einsatzgruppen coming in after to sweep up and execute potential rebels and torture confessions out of people and make sure that there will be no resistance to the new occupiers. It's cold-hearted, it's industrialized, it's murderous, and unfortunately only a small taste of what is to come 
when Hitler's men are coming in and taking charge. It's absolutely abhorrent. And just to be super clear, even though we are questioning whether or not Stalin has gotten away too easy for his role in starting the Second World War, I mean, that does not in any way mean that we are trying to downplay the Nazis or pretend that they were any better than what they were. In fact, it's very hard to try to imagine anything worse, which shouldn't come as a surprise. You need to be real creative in a super sadistic way to conjure up something worse than what we will see. Although I'll try not to delve into all kinds of details when it's not necessary because there's so much human suffering going on here and I trust that you get the point. But I'll give you a quote from Roger Morehouse's excellent book, The Devil's Alliance. Quote, There was often little logic to the killings and some atrocities were sparked by the slightest pretext. At Kajetanovice, for instance, 72 Polish civilians were massacred in the response to the death of two German horses in a friendly fire incident. According to the most comprehensive study, the German military executed over 12,000 Polish citizens in September 1939 alone. End quote. So if I'm reading this correctly, the Germans by accident um, shot two of their own horses and then felt that the proper course of action would be to kill 72 random Polish people. I mean, just imagine being a civilian in that kind of environment. I think... There's no doubt that the occupation of Poland is particularly bad. And the confusion of people living there at the time, I think it's impossible for us to fathom. I don't really think the phrase being caught between a rock and a hard place has really fitted in better than it does for Poland in 1939. They are stuck between two fanatical superpowers. They want nothing good for them and they are surely... um, you know, they're surely going to suffer even though they are supposedly protected by nations that are miles away from them and they can really do nothing. Uh, and, you know, they're in, in effect powerless to help you out on the battlefield. There will be several cases of Polish bravery. I mean, they do really put up a fight, but the German invasion is just a knockout blow. And we, if that wasn't bad enough... You know, you have Stalin coming in from the other side 16 days later. It's a nightmare. Everything these days will be happening real fast for many people. And, you know, of all the World War II movies that are made or have been made, they really should be making a real good one about these days of August and the beginning of September 1939, because the drama that is unfolding both on the political stage and on an individual level is just immense. There will be so many stories here that are still untold, and in the center of everything is this Nazi-Soviet pact. Stalin, on his side, he's actually also taken a little bit by surprise by Hitler's speed and Hitler's blitzkrieg, even if Hitler had already postponed the invasion some days. 
Already on September the 12th, German forces has reached certain areas of Poland that were earmarked for Stalin. And as he at this point sees that the West are not really going to do all that much other than, you know, having formally declared war, he starts to amass about 500,000 soldiers along the Polish border and Molotov speaks to Berlin and asks for a heads up when the city of Warsaw has fallen so they can time their invasion accordingly. When they do get the go-ahead, they are making contact with the Polish ambassador in Moscow at 3am in the morning, informing him that since the Polish state has disintegrated, they will now go in to protect their people of Belarusian and Ukrainian blood living in Poland. The Polish ambassador, he's protesting this, of course, refusing any such action, and he's arguing that no one said that the Russian state had been disintegrating when Napoleon invaded them. But of course, you know, they're, they're not really interested in what he has to say, and he is a very lucky man to escape from the USSR with his life, and not all Polish diplomats will be so fortunate. Compared to Hitler's invasion of Poland, the Soviet invasion must have seemed much more improvised and much more ragtag-like. It's disorganized and less planned. Even so, they managed to march in a half million Red Army soldiers with tanks and artillery, and as you can imagine, the Polish army was, you know, in no state to be able to defend themselves against this at this point. I mean, many of the soldiers that used to be stationed in the east of Poland, they had already hastily been moved west in order to face the Wehrmacht. Let's take the city of Grodno as an example. It is in today's Belarus, just to emphasize the borders even today are, you know, what they are because of all of this. The Red Army troops came there the 20th of September 1939. The city used to be heavily guarded, but at this time, most of the best soldiers had left, and those that were still defending the city would be a few remaining soldiers, but also many civilians and many teenage boys and even Boy Scouts. So I think maybe we would call them children today. Due to clever defending, though, it would take the Soviets two days to capture the city, um, despite the defenders often having little less than small arms and homemade firebombs to defend themselves with. Whereas, of course, the Soviets, they used artillery and tanks. One tale coming from this battle is that of one Tadeusz Jasinski, a 15-year-old Polish boy captured while trying to throw a homemade gasoline bomb at the invading forces. Allegedly, this boy was tortured and then tied up in front of a Red Army tank as a human shield in order to prevent his comrades from firing on it, which is just horrific. He died on the second day. I suppose your odds after being more or less crucified to a Red Army tank would probably not be all that great to begin with, but Jasinski, he became one of several powerful symbols of Polish resistance against the Soviets. And while some thought him to be a myth, historians have recently found some photos of him. So at least we know that there existed a person with this name, although his story might be hard to verify. 
But again, great material for a movie here, people. The human drama is intense. The city of Grodno had to surrender the 22nd of September after heavily, heavily uh, artillery bombardment and um, all the captured officers were promptly executed by the Russians. We now know the horrors of Einsatzgruppen very well, but I suppose that if you were a Polish civilian or a Polish person in the way, it would of course make little difference if the person executing you was wearing a German or a Soviet uniform. It should also be said that in several Polish towns, they had people applauding and welcoming the Soviets. And you know the reason for them doing so was, well, you know, many different reasons, to be honest. Some of them thought that they had come there in order to kick out the Nazis of Poland and liberate Poland and liberate the Polish people when they were in fact collaborating with the Nazis, whereas others had political motives for cheering them on like they were communists or socialists. But a lot of these people would soon enough change their opinions. One of the most heartbreaking examples of confusion that struck the Polish population during this time is to be found among the Jews, because you can imagine you have very little time in a situation like this to make your choice of where to flee. And of course, none of the prospects would look particularly tempting to most. And faced with these horrible dilemmas, several Jewish families, of course, still unaware of the Holocaust that would follow, they're actually preferring Nazi rule over Soviet rule, and they're fleeing west. It's uncertain, though, if they really would have been better off in the East. We don't know. During these first months of occupation, the secret police, the NKVD, they're arresting hundreds of thousands of Poles. Several of them will end up in gulags or forced labor camps that many of them would not make it out alive from. So regardless of who you're ending up with, Godzilla or King Kong, it's likely not going to be pleasant. One horrifying example from the Soviet side is on one occasion where 15,000 Polish men, many of them army officers, were taken prisoners and interrogated and imprisoned. This is a few months after the initial invasion. We're over in 1940 here. Many of these uh, captives had no suspicion that they would die. After all, spending some time in a prisoner of war camp is kind of to be expected when being defeated by another army, but you don't necessarily expect to be taken out in the woods and shot. Roger Morehouse quotes from the diary of a Major Adam Solsky that was writing right up until the point of his death. Quote, We have been brought somewhere to a forest. It looks like a summer resort. Here a thorough personal search. Rubles, belt and pocket knife are taken. End quote. And that was the last anyone heard from Major Solsky. Major Solsky died in what is known as the Katyn Massacre, 
And these are all real people. We have their names, some of them anyways. We don't know many of them, but we know some. But we also know one of the executioners and we know the name of the person likely pulling the trigger on this Major Solsky. His name is Vasily Blokin. Now, Blokin, he is one of the most infamous executioners of all time. He was handpicked by Stalin himself, and you would like to know what was going on in the mind of someone like that. But if anything, we can only judge him on his action. Little is known about his inner life, but we know that he would execute these guys up close with a pistol. He would be wearing an apron and gloves for the blood, and he could typically do 250 of these executions in one evening. Just wow, that is real dark. It is, on average, it was estimated, one execution every three minutes. I don't know if we can find any other such cases than in very totalitarian regimes that would cater for this. I mean, of course you get psychopaths and mass murderers everywhere, but these kind of systems are actively catering for them, rewarding them and helping them. Just imagine the apparatus needed for blocking to be able to kill every three minutes. I mean, think about it. You had, you had to have heaps of NKVD people dragging people in and corpses out, holding them still, then burying them in trenches every night. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. Blockin would later be awarded for his job, by the way. So this was, of course, this is nothing that was unknown to the leadership in Moscow. I think it is very important to note that, of course, not everyone are bad because the system is bad. You can always have extremely poor culture, but I always will urge everyone not to fall for the temptation to think that everyone that comes from a certain place are bad just to simplify things. And this is, of course, also valid for for the Russians in this, for many people in either NKVD or the Red Army, they would never have experienced any of this. And I think Morehouse in his book does a good job in highlighting some of those examples where individuals are actually showing a lot of sorrow and pity and empathy. Uh, there's one officer trying to give a small girl some dolls before she's deported saying that there will be no dolls where you're going, but um, he's doing so apparently out of kindness. Uh, there are other examples of Russian officers crying when they are seeing their children. So these are, the individuals are not monsters. The system is a monster. So it's important to remember, of course, not all Russians in Stalin's Soviet Union are bad, not just as, you know, not all Germans being brought up in the Nazi regime are bad either. And like trials after the war, of course, we'll deal with, it's mainly the bigwigs you naturally try to convict, that those particularly sadistics, sadistic or those that really, really should have known better, but, you know, there are sort of 
many different fates and obviously it's never like every person is a sadist because they come from a certain place, a certain time in history. On the other side, of course, every individual has a responsibility and we're all human beings capable of doing wonderful and terrible things regardless of where we originate from. In this dire situation, however, the fact is that you are at huge risk of facing a gruesome fate no matter what side of the Nazi-Soviet split you are on because they both have very much genocidal agendas. In the west of Poland, the twisted views the Nazis had on race would be defining. In the east, the twisted views they had on social class would be defining, manifested through Stalin's paranoia. So if you were seen as a class traitor or an enemy of the revolution, I think it's fair to say that you were not much more worth in the eyes of your occupiers there than a Jewish person would be in the eyes of the Nazis. Okay, let's finish up what happens in September 1939 because there might be one question that you might still be asking yourself and that is to what extent did these two sides actually cooperate on the ground? Now we mentioned that there is some kind of synchronization between Berlin and Moscow and the deal that they made was that it should be a 25-mile gap between the two armies at all times. Still, they did meet, and it was seemingly like meetings between allies, not enemies. Uh, someone even tried to coin some phrases like Emanski and Rosiski, Starke zusammen meaning that the Germans and Russians are stronger together and such. But still, I wouldn't say there's not heaps of interaction uh, but whenever there was, they were they collaborated professionally and cordially, smiling and sharing cigarettes. Both sides purposefully ensuring to adhere to the brand new treaty between the up until recent arch enemies. Indirectly, we must say the Soviets also, of course, benefits a lot from the German invasion that took place only just about a couple of weeks before they came into Poland. In the before-mentioned Battle of Grodno, uh, we touched upon this, German planes and artillery, they had already actually attacked the very same city, very much weakening it, it, just in addition to all the soldiers that had to move out of there. So in many instances, the Soviets, they're kind of picking up the pieces. Uh, it would likely have been a different fight if the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe had not already been delivering their knockout punches a couple of weeks prior. For Poland, though, life would not be the same. I still remember as a child, I went to very much multicultural school and it was a bit boring to be the only one having only one nationality. So I kind of hyped up that my great-grandmother, she was Russian, and she actually was kind of a Russian descent living in Russia, but same, same. Claiming... Um, claiming that was kind of also making me a bit Russian, you know, and then we got a Polish boy starting in a class that clearly had some family history, 
that was not so great with the Russians. And even though we were only about eight or nine years old, I still remember the awkwardness when I sort of childishly boasted my marginal claim to being Russian and also then multicultural. And he responded with something clearly stating that he didn't think that this was great at all. He thought it rather problematic. And I was totally unaware of the history then. But anyways, I still still remember that. And that was the first time I kind of became aware that there is, okay, there is some tension here. Becoming occupied by a foreign power can take many different forms. I mean, you don't necessarily notice that everything changes overnight. It's not like black becomes white necessarily. I mean, the grass is still green, the sky is blue. It can take many forms. Certain things take time to change, whereas other things happen more or less immediately. I mean, the most imminent thing you will notice if you are occupied is that there is a lot of foreign soldiers all of, all around the place all of a sudden. But if you're lucky, like Norway was, for example, in many ways, as described in our very first series of this pod, the occupiers might let you more or less alone if you are a civilian, although some might steal your stuff or, or worse, abuse you physically or even worse, sexually. But if you're lucky... You can stay low and the wheels of society will kind of, you know, keep moving to some extent. They might even start growing a bit of hope in you. The things might not be that bad after all. I mean, if you're the milkman, people still need milk the next day and your already established systems and routines, they're still there for the most part and doesn't necessarily stop because there are foreign soldiers in the streets, although many of these soldiers speaking a foreign language might all of a sudden become your customers or your bosses. If they abuse you or threaten you, perhaps you might want to either conspire with them, join enemy ranks to improve your own position, or perhaps you will do the exact opposite, join or start some sort of secret resistance. But most people, when in this bizarre situation, seems to try to make sense of it all, keep low and try to get on with things. Then there are the more long-term changes happening. It can take weeks or months or even years, depending on the type of occupier you are so unfortunate to have, And what the occupiers are pretending is their motivation and how clear a plan they might have or might not have and what previous experience they might have in this role. There might, in fact, be quite a bit of improvisation to this occupying business. The first thing you might find out and you might find out real fast is of course that certain things cannot be said out loud. That's a given. But as time goes by, you might learn that there are other things as well, such as food becoming harder to come by, and that your neighbor is all of a sudden gone from being that jolly fella on the other side of the fence to being something else over a few months. Perhaps your neighbor knows that you had a Jewish grandma or that you 10 years prior were a member of a political party critical to certain doctrines. And perhaps your neighbour would have very few incentives keeping his mouth shut 
is some guys with guns and clubs comes at his store and starts bashing him about just a tiny bit. Then they might take you downtown into an interrogation room and perhaps you try to explain that this grandma wasn't really Jewish or that this other political party where you only went to one meeting that one time when you were silly and youthful and you really weren't all that anti-communist, you didn't even like it, you might say. Maybe perhaps you are, you know, you can be lucky. Maybe they're only taking a few notes. They maybe. uh, Maybe they only ask a couple of questions before they let you go, knowing that, you know, killing the milkman, that will mean no milk tomorrow. Maybe, you know, consider this a warning kind of thing. Perhaps you are beaten. Maybe you're beaten quite badly, but, you know, maybe you get out of there with a displaced jaw and a few broken ribs. That's all, not not necessarily all that bad. But perhaps you will end up like Major Solsky. And if you do or not, might come down to the mood of the guy in uniform in charge of the interrogation. Perhaps your neighbour had, you know, even been making everything up, still resulting in that inside of that interrogation room being the last thing you would ever see. And there are tons of these stories from the Second World War and from all kinds of places being under the rule of authoritarian regimes. The thing, of course, with these regimes is that the coin very quickly turns on you. You can very quickly go from being part of the cool gang to all of a sudden becoming the enemy if you are considered too problematic. I mean, just ask Trotsky or Anström, for that matter, the storm-uptailing leader murdered by Hitler during the Night of the Long Knives. Authoritarianism has its own dynamics, whether or not you wrap it in Nazism or communism or something else. It's a slippery slope where things quickly gets out of hand. It is, of course, no coincidence that both Molotov and Ribbentrop are both sycophants or the utmost extreme. And in Molotov's case, he was actively taking part in the killing of all these people, suddenly finding themselves outside of the official party line. I suppose that's one way you can survive. In German-occupied Poland after 1939, obviously we get the infamous ghettos where Jews are gathered under horrific conditions and in many ways I can I think we can say that this is the prelude to what will become the Holocaust and all this is also a result indirectly at least from this Nazi Soviet pact. For the Soviets they didn't have the same concentration camps as the Germans had of course you might know Auschwitz is in Poland But the Soviets had gulags, and whereas the Nazis would be constructing mass killing camps more or less on the spot for those people they viewed as problematic for one reason or another, um, the Soviets were big fans of deportations. This is also sometimes considered genocide, by the way, and the forcible movement of large number of peoples away from their lands is done often in order to break down resistance and to break down cultural unity. It's kind of hard to organize something to oppose your oppressors if you and your mates are spread out with no means of communication 
and you put in a labour camp thousands of miles away from home with all strangers also from all over the place. If you were deported far into the Soviet Union from Poland, you could be lucky with your transportation. There was quite a gap in the possible range of experiences here. You might even have soldiers selling you some ham and cheese. So if you had any money left, you might actually eat. If you were not so lucky, you would be locked into packed train wagons with no toilet facilities, bar a hole in the floor straight onto the railways, no place to sit or sleep, literal or no food or water. And after a while, you would have people starting to die around you during the weeks such a trip might take. And this would again be forcing you to start throwing corpses of your fellow passengers down your toilet hatch into the ground or out the windows if you would have those at all as they would pile up and increase the risk of disease. And sometimes those common passengers might be your friends or family. It is fair to say that these regimes... They are not really concerned how you are treated. You are, as an individual, completely unimportant. Your only capacity seems to be your capability for either rebellion or your potential for labor or for contribution to the machine. Are you going to be use of us to use of us kind of thing, or are you going to be a burden? That's the that's the mindset. And since these totalitarian machines has very few or no checks and balances, like for example legal systems that are independent from the head of state, which is absolutely essential for any working society that is not totalitarian, there are no safety mechanisms there to protect you as an individual. I mean, who are you going to call the police? They're under full control by the same system that, you know, that's killing you. And that in turn will lead to these mock trials like we see during the Stalin era where they don't even bother spending more than a couple of minutes on the charade before you dragged out in the back and short. I mean, at this point, it's almost surprising that you, you even bother doing to do this. I mean, that you're even bothering to pretend as it's you know so obvious for us to see. But there you go. We don't know exactly how many Poles were deported to the Soviet Union, but we are talking numbers in the several hundreds of thousands. We don't know how many of those died, but likely most would never return home. Many would not survive the gulags. We have an excellent insight to how life was in a gulag through the Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his short story One Day or One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, as it's sometimes translated. Solzhenitsyn was himself imprisoned from 1945 to 1953, so he very much had a first-hand experience with this and he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1970, largely because of this work. And I can really recommend reading him and if you're wondering how uh, he would be allowed to publish something like this, exposing the dirty inner secrets of the gulags, it was because that after Stalin's death, the Soviet Union went through a de-Stalinization period 
under Nikolai Khrushchev, where they tried to sort of distance themselves a little bit from the past and they would gradually change the system. So Solzhenitsyn's work kind of is describing the past for them. His his description of the, the gulag was, it was thoroughly reviewed, but then finally allowed to be published as part of this sort of um, distancing oneself from the previous sort of era. We'll soon start rounding off this episode and uh, lay down the foundation for the next one. But one point we haven't really talked about so much is all those other parts uh, that is kind of coming in the wake of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and especially that is all these sort of economic and military agreements uh, coming in that would further sort of emphasize the term non-aggression pact is hardly accurate for what this really was. In other instances, you would call this a straight-out alliance, although I suppose pact is in fact the word also used at the time, and that is of course also a strong word. But again, I suspect that the Churchill interpretation here weighs in a little bit and wording and language really matter people. If you listen to it, a pact of non-aggression doesn't sound as bad, does it? I mean, it's just like, okay, somebody doesn't want to kill each other. That doesn't sound sinister at all. But if you had said that in reality, this was a joint effort to commit a massive genocide on a completely innocent population of several million and to help fuel Nazi takeover of the world, it's nothing but sinister. Now, it should be said that none of these parties, the Soviets or the Nazis. Of course, they're not altruists in any way, of course. There is clearly also very real animosity here from the start. So the economic partnership would not be as fruitful as especially Hitler had imagined in the beginning. And parts of that is because Stalin is wrongfully thinking that he is negotiating from a much stronger position than what he really is. The thinking behind this is that Germany was entangled in a war, uh, whereas he had the luxury of being able to stay out of it for the time being. So he was sort of making rather absurd claims on pricing and goods coming from the Soviet Union, really, really frustrating the, 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 the Germans. On paper, though, it looked quite appealing from both sides. Germany, they had technology and precision engineering that the Soviets had not, while the Soviets had natural resources in abundance that Germany did not. Roger Morehouse does a good job in calculating how much trade there really was, but due to problems collaborating over time, it was only you know a small percentage of what was intended actually coming um, coming the Nazi way and vice versa. Uh, not at all as much raw material coming from the Soviet Union. It would typically be oil and rubber and iron ore and those kind of things. One reason for this, there are several, but one is that in systems like this, and especially the Soviet one, where you so easily get executed for treason, you don't really feel as an individual 
that you are at liberty at doing deals, especially with people you're not really sure that you are supposed to be friends with or if you're only sort of kind of pretending to be friends with them. So you won't, in negotiations, you won't give an inch and you even can make kind of preposterous claims on top of already agreed terms just to sort of keep your back safe. So no one afterwards will come and brand you as a traitor to the revolution. So you would have endless layers of middlemen scared for their lives, desperate not to sort of stick out as the ones that gives the Germans a two soft deals. So these trade agreements, they actually come to such sticky points a couple of times that the Germans have to go straight to Stalin himself to sort it out, which he surprisingly enough does. When Stalin is pushed hard enough, he actually repeatedly gives in. And this will be a pattern here. He's removing obstacles so the deals can go through. And it's a pattern goes all the way through the start of Operation Barbarossa and the, and the German attack on the Soviet Union. Actually, it's only towards the end that this trade is going well because then Stalin is sort of, you know, feel like he's really pushed and he's scared and he gives the Germans, you know, a lot of stuff. It should be said also that, especially in the beginning, the Soviets are, however, also demanding a lot the other way. They are demanding airplanes, tanks, optics, basically just military technology of all sorts. And, you know, what is really surprising is they actually get one out of only five heavy warships that Nazi Germany has in the Admiral Hipper class. These are huge, huge, huge ships. Um, and Hitler has actually lost one of them in the Oslo Fjord in 1940. He still gives one to, to Stalin. Um, and the Soviets, they're making official trips to Germany. And there is this feeling that the Germans are not really showing them everything they have, which is true. So there is distrust from the start here. And these sort of delegations from both sides, they are feeling... Um, you know, they are that the other sides are constantly a little bit lying, although they're on the surface, they seem to be sort of showing them a lot, and there are parades and they are demonstrating German planes and whatnot. And I think it's fair to say that these sort of growing frustrations on both sides, they are not irrelevant, at least, to the coming Nazi attack in the summer of 1941, the Operation Barbarossa, and Hitler's had enough of these communists, and he deems that he has no use for them anymore, as the geopolitical landscape in Europe has changed dramatically, and Nazi Germany is looking more or less unbeatable. If you are a Stalin apologist, though, and perhaps also if you would defend Vladimir Putin all of a sudden starting to flirt not only with Lenin, but also Stalin in rhetoric and symbolism, you might argue that this was all a smart plan from old comrade Whiskers, as he was sometimes called because of his fluffy moustache, that he did what he had to do in 1939, bravely even perhaps, to save his people and build up strength while sending the Germans into a quagmire of political and economical deals that 
little came out of while he himself would use the German military technology that he got in order to mount an Eastern Front that would, in the end, defeat Nazism, and that this was all part of the grand scheme. You might also say that, of course, there are regrettable things, every country has them. Sure, we shouldn't have shipped all those people to the Gulag. Stalin wasn't all good, but he sure as hell wasn't all bad either, you might argue. Or at least I can imagine certain people in the Kremlin today arguing that way, being very concerned with history. Saying, you know, maybe they would say that we as post-Soviet sort of Russia that grew out of the Soviet Union. We have nothing to be ashamed of here in our history. And anyone even remotely daring to compare our Joseph Stalin to someone like Adolf Hitler as a liar and a criminal. Of course, this is both the beauty and complexity of history, what is quote-unquote truth and not. And also in topics like this one that has a lot of political stake in them currently, there will be more fighting for what people believe to be truth and not. And as always, I think people and you guys listening, you should always closely evaluate sources and motives of those making claims before making up your own minds. But after working as a journalist for several years, I think the one exercise that's most valuable for me is to be critical or your sources always try to look behind the motivations. And that is not because all people are lies or cynical people. It's kind of more human nature that you tend to spin certain things your own way. And especially for certain sources, their truths can often be their very strong opinions more than truth disguised as facts. And of course, you also have outright liars, especially so when there's a lot of power at stake. The definition of modern history holds a lot of powerful political currency. And that is exactly why topics such as this that we have been discussing here are so important. If you know past events, it's easier to see through political feints in the present. And uh, I'm definitely not saying that all sides and all opinions are equal or worth saying not at all. I think... If you know these things, I think you will see through a lot of current propaganda, especially the one coming from the Russian side in the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Anyways, we will round off here for now. If you know anyone you feel would benefit from some extra historical insights into this, please share this episode with them. When we return the next time with our third and final episode in this series, we will look at the Soviet occupation of the Baltics and the fight against Finland. We will see how the relationship gradually deteriorates between Hitler and Stalin, leading to the attack in 1941 on the Soviet Union. And in the end, we will see what kind of parallels there are to modern conflicts and politics.
you'll never surrender. <laughs>